World War II. I suppose the world has never been the same since then. What about World War II? And what was it like to be a soldier or a sailor or a pilot? What was it like to be a black soldier, sailor, or pilot? What's ironic, it was the war against Hitler, and yet for most of that war it was wholly segregated. Now, there was one group known as the, the Tuskegee Airmen, probably known, who had one of the best track records of any fighter group in the war, the American services, uh, black fighter pilots. And they didn't lose one American bomber that they escorted over the fields they bombed, the various fields of the Axis. And seated around, this is, we're talking now about 40-some years ago, aren't we? And seated around the microphone are four, well, one will join us in a moment, three veterans, soon four. Uh, they've been around for a long time, and their memories, I'm sure, are keen and sharp of this. There's Judge John W. Rogers, who was judge of the county circuit court. Uh, Bill Thompson, lieutenant colonel of the Air Force, retired. Ralph Orduna, who was a combat fighter pilot. We'll be joined by Sammy Rayner, the former alderman and now funeral director. And all four of them were Tuskegee Airmen. Suppose, suppose we hear, suppose we hear the voice of one of your colleagues of 40 years ago, Lowell Stewart. And I was asking about training and he was describing how segregated it was and how there was doubts among the hot shots, the big shots, that black guys could fly planes. And he speaks of being put in the south near Tuskegee. And we hear his voice, and you can take off from there. Getting the permission to establish a training field in, in the south. The reason it was put in the south was, uh, one, the climate was better for flying. There was a lot more open spaces. and. Uh, as one of the soldiers or fellows in charge of this uh, endeavor said that, uh, well, if it doesn't work out, it'll be down south and nobody will see him mm. fail anyway. So the whole thing was set up with the idea that uh, blacks could not fly an airplane. And uh, on that basis, they just thought, well, we'll give them a chance. Uh, if they succeed, I guess it won't hurt anything, but if they fail, they'll be down south, be out in the country, and nobody will know about it, and they'll hush it up. But it was complete opposite. It was a, a tremendous uh, success beyond their wildest dreams. So they had established quotas. They were getting so many volunteers for the Air Force and qualified young men that uh, they had to limit the size of the classes in the beginning, and uh, their intention was to form the 99th Fighter Squadron. And consequently, they had so many pilots graduating, in spite of Washington, washing the pilots out of flying school for ridiculous reasons, uh, such as not wearing your hat on straight or not saying yes, sir, to one of the instructors and get washed out because of attitude, uh, not flying ability. To Just in hearing Lowell Stewart's voice recalling those years ago, what is that? Uh, what comes to your mind, Judge Rogers, as you hear his voice? 
I'm reminded of the time when I applied for the Air Force back in 1940. And at that time, they told me that there wasn't any openings in the Air Force for blacks, but they did have an opening for a truck driver. And I told them they could keep it mm -hmm. because I wasn't interested in driving a truck. I wanted to fly. All my life, I had wanted to fly. But they, by that time, they wheels were in motion. And in 1941, shortly after the, the war began, December the 7th, 1980, 1940, one, I was called in. Matter of fact, December the 19th, I left Chicago going to Tuskegee to join the Air Force. Air Corps. Air Corps. Well, at that time it was yeah. Air Corps, but it later yeah. became the Air, Air Force. Corps. I've just been corrected. But it, as I, when I arrive, you don't go to Tuskegee. You think you're going to Tuskegee, but you get out there, you're <laughs> out from Tuskegee. Yeah. A, a place called Cheehaw. You get off, the rail, get off the train at Cheehaw, and when you get off, middle of the night, and if you see a lighted station, you walk in the lighted station. One light, one light. No, it was a beautifully lighted station on one side. One light and when I the moon was on the other side. One forty-one lamp. I, when I walked in. <laughs> on the white side. When I walked in, the guy didn't answer any questions, and I wanted to know how to get to Tuskegee. He ignored me. And then I said, well, what kind of station is this that you won't give anybody any information? So then the... The fellow who was behind the ticket counter said, I don't want no trouble out of you, boy. Oh, boy. And then yeah. I realized that I was no longer in Chicago. I was in Cheehaw, Alabama, where they, and I had made a mistake by going into the white side of the station and stood at a little dingy side of, yeah. for blacks. And he did, of course, he didn't give me any information at all. Yeah. Then they managed to send somebody out there to pick us up to take us you to You know Tuskegee. what's terribly moving and funny and, of course, tragic? tragic. So many years later, 40 years, all four of you remembered, and you all came in and sang, one light. There's one thing, see? <coughs> so it had that what, tremendous what, effect no. on you. What about your memory of that, Bill Thompson? Well, listen, I can, uh, I think I was there before Jack was. Uh, I can remember once I uh, was asked by a group of fellows that were in my section, and I was in the Army section, and uh, I said I was going into town. Well, Bill, they called me, Lieutenant then. Would you uh, stop at the station and get me a uh, timetable because I'm planning to go to Chicago? So I went into the station. I went in on the side that's reserved for blacks. And uh, there were two people in the middle. That's where the office was separated. The whites from the blacks was an office. And uh, one was on the telephone, and his conversation was something like this. Now, I ain't seen that nigger all day today, but when he shows up, I'll send him up there. Well, now, here I stand there looking at him and another one sitting on top of a desk drinking a Coke out of a six-ounce bottle. Both of them looking at me and paid me no attention whatsoever. So I leaned forward and rapped on the desk. And he wow. says, okay, nigga, now, you do that one more time, I'm going to put you in jail. <laughs> so at that point, I reached over again and rapped on the desk again deliberately. And then I turned facing the door because... I saw him leave the middle of the office. I thought he was coming around. I guess I waited what appeared maybe to be a minute, and uh, I decided, well, now, I don't want to create any problems down here, so what I'll do is uh, uh, go get in my car, and when I headed for my car, I saw him coming out of a house across the track, and he had a pistol in his hand. The barrel must have been about 14 or 15 inches long, like one of those old revolutionary pistols. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, all I could do in my mind, being an army officer, was thinking, now, what is the range of that damn thing? You know? ah. <laughs> <laughs> so I got in my car, and I reached in the pocket of my car, and I had two items in there. One was electric razor, and the other was a slide rule in a leather case. I took the slide rule out, and to make certain that he saw my arm movements, I started sliding it back and forth like I was charging a forty-five, <laughs> And then I put it on the seat uh, very easily, and then I backed away very slowly, and I turned towards Tuskegee Air Base. And I put, put the hammer to the floor. Put your foot in the tank. And uh, got out of there, but I was thinking, range, range, 75 yards. When I got to 76 yards... <laughs> 90 mile an hour. <laughs> but I'll say this. I came back a couple days later because I had raised so much cane about this experience at headquarters that when I went back a couple days later, uh, I had requested a leave to go to Chicago myself because I was really unhappy with this experience. Uh, I would have had to make my application for this leave three days prior to the day that I wanted to be effective. I put it in at headquarters office in the morning well, on my way to breakfast, and before I finished breakfast, it was approved because I had raised so yeah. much cane yeah. over, over this experience. Yeah. Went down to the station next night or so, found out that these guys had been moved out, yeah. moved up the tracks. Yeah. I got down there, and the first thing I did was wrap, without looking, I wrapped on the desk again, looking straight ahead, and a little old short fella came in and uh, where are you going, Lieutenant, on leave? Train's running a little late today. Uh, here's the Sunday paper. Would you like to look at it while you're waiting? <laughs> you know, this is, this is amazing. So how many years ago was this? We're talking about some 40-some years ago, ago, aren't we? Yes. And what if yeah. three years ago. And think about their memory of humiliation. And to become combat fighters, to become fighter pilots for the U.S. Air Force, Sammy Rayner. Your thoughts, your memory on thinking back to those beginnings. Well, I was I was an officer also at uh, in uh, where was I? I was up in northern Michigan, uh, anti-aircraft. We were guarding the Sioux Lock, Sioux Saint Marie, and I got my call and I went by train to Chihaw, of course. And uh, when I got there, there were several other fellows on the train with me, and uh, there was a taxi waiting for us. And I, so I had no problem at Chihaw. It's, it's kind of fuzzy, but Chihaw wasn't. Uh, I'd been south previously, and I was prepared for most anything uh, to be uh, embarrassed or to be felt small or whatever. I, I kind of got myself together, I, and I had decided that I wasn't going to do what I was going to do until the time arrived. I, 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 I thought I would plan to say something smart back because I was an officer. Of course, being down there, being an officer didn't mean very much. But I decided I was going to let the situation bring about how I would react to it. But uh, I went right to the base. There was a cab there waiting. They, they must have been expecting some other. They weren't even mm, sitting where well, I was, was sitting. That was the Roger Thompson Cab Company because by that time we had gone into business on our own. By the way, all four of it come to Ralph. That, that was in June 43. 43. All four of you were going down. You were young lieutenants at the time, weren't oh, you? Oh, I was not. You, was you see, cadet. at that time, you could go into the Air Force if you passed a physical, uh -huh. if you had two years of college without any type of written examination. Mm -hmm. And I was going in as a college graduate, mm -hmm. but I was not as yeah. a soldier and not yeah. and a part of any armed forces of any kind at the time. You were a civilian going down there, but I had been in the Army. 
couple of years before that. Yeah. Uh, what about Ralph Orduna? Your your first memories of this time? Well, I'm going back a little bit. Uh, I'm not going back as far as uh, Judge Rogers and uh, Colonel Thompson because I came along a little bit later. A friend of mine across lived across the street from us in the same neighborhood was in training at Tuskegee, and although I had always wanted to fly, we used to uh, watch these fellows come out with their private planes and they do certain maneuvers over our homes, and it was just in me to want to join. And uh, of course the war had been declared at that time, and I had volunteered. Now, at the time that I volunteered, I have two people to really thank, my father, who was very dead set against segregation and any type of activity that promoted this type of treatment. And also an old retired uh, sergeant he was, Sergeant Bevins. Uh, he was, uh, I think he was in, uh, with Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, he was that old, but he had been retired. And when we went down there, well, my father and I had gone down to see about me taking an examination. This is in Omaha, Nebraska, which surprises me because we lived among whites of all nationalities. There were Germans, there were Bohemians, Irish, and we, we lived in a mixed neighborhood. I didn't know what segregation was until I tried to join the armed service. Now, when I got down to the, to the enlistment station there, here this fellow tells me, he says, uh, colored people aren't flying. I says, what do you mean? Now, I knew that a friend of mine was already in training. His name was Woodrow Morgan. I think these other fellows might remember. They call him Geronimo because he was a mixed Indian. And I said, well, this is impossible. I said, well, I have a friend that's flying. No, not, no, we don't have colored people flying. I said, well, it's in Tuskegee, Alabama. He said, well, now, if you want to get in armed service, he said, you go around the corner there to the, to the Coast Guard. He said, I think you can get in there. So I told my father, let's go see what they're talking about. So we went around there, and they gave me an application to be in the mess as ah. the cook. My father said, let's get out of here. So we took off, went home. We got hold of, of um, <coughs> the War Department's address and wrote a, a letter directly to the War Department. And they sent specific orders to the board to give me a test. Now, the requirement at that time, like... Judge Rogers said it was either two years of college or pass ex entrance exam. Well, I didn't have two years of college, so I had to, uh, to pass the exam. So after I took the exam, I flunked. I missed out in algebra. I went directly across the street to a bookstore, bought me an algebra book, and I still have that algebra book at mm. home. Studied it while the other children were out playing ball, running up and down the street. I was studying algebra. I retook the test and passed it. Now it comes time for me to wait. There's a waiting period. And they wanted me to report in May of the next year, May of 1943. They told me to be ready. And when I went, I received a letter from the draft board. I was 1A. They told me I didn't have the time to wait. This is where Sergeant Bevins came in. He's a friend of the family. He says, take me down to the, to the draft board. I took him down that evening. We went, he went up, he said, you sit right here and wait for me. I waited in the car. He went upstairs, stayed about 20 minutes, come down and said, you got your time. 
Now, he saved me. And then when the time arrived, and I was working at Martin Aircraft Company at that time. I was a lead man in the final assembly. And when that time came, then I reported yeah. to Tuskegee. This is fascinating, but we're about to pause for a message, and we'll resume right after. Resuming with my four guests, Judge John W. Rogers of the County Circuit Court, uh, Colonel Bill Thompson, uh, Ralph Orduna, and former Alderman Sammy Rayner, all four of whom are alumni of the Tuskegee Airmen experience. You know, this is the beginning. This is what initiation, because we now know history tells us that the record, that was an unprecedented <coughs> record established by the Tuskegee Airmen, the alumni, is it not, in protecting the bomber. So the next step, so we keep going. What happened next is the story. I know you called. May I add one thing, Stas, that uh, I think was rather interesting. These gentlemen speak about their education and so forth. But when the 99th was shipped overseas after it was activated and trained and so forth, practically every man in that outfit was a college graduate or at least two years. I understood, and the record shows, that it was the, the only outfit, it was a unit with the highest intelligentsia of any organization that was ever shipped overseas at one time. That included the enlisted men. We went from college graduates, masters, and a couple of PhDs. They picked the and cream of the crop. They yeah. recruited the, the yeah. cream. And in fact, they went into the colleges uh, to seek these people. And even at that, uh, they, they washed out. There was a, a saying down there that they washed out better, f better pilots than they graduated some of the other flying institutions. In other words, to prove yourselves, you had to go over, way over and beyond anything over and above. that white guys had to do. Well, that was well a we, we for weren't in competition really with white guys, let's mm. face it. What we did, when we went into the service, they had a Jim Crow outfit at Tuskegee. We had the primary where they had black instructors training black pilots in the Army primary. When you finished the Army primary, you went to basic. And in basic, you had white instructors training black pilots. So that now you're in a situation where the black, inst uh, black pilots were forced to take whatever they had to take in order to accomplish their goals from white instructors. But they were not all bad instructors. Some of those guys were regular fellows, good, decent men who had a job to do and did a job. And from basic, we went to advance. There again, you had advance. You had black pilots with white instructors. And from advance, you went right into the flying combat the planes. Transition. And then you went overseas. Now, what happens at the bases overseas? Well, when we first went overseas, as he indicated earlier, they sent 27 pilots, and I guess there were some five or six. There were more than that. Bill, how many? 210 enlisted men. 210 enlisted men, but they had a, a total complement <coughs> of about 33 officers, I guess it was, right. when we went overseas. Well, these were guys with no combat experience. But because they didn't know what to do with us, we had an awful lot of flying experience. And we weren't sent into combat right away. We were still, tr we trained at Tuskegee before we went overseas. The Pittsburgh Courier, Chicago Defender, the newspapers of that type were fighting to get us sent overseas. I wasn't fighting to go anywhere. <laughs> 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 but, but, they were, but they were fighting to get us sent overseas. And 
And still, we sat at Tuskegee while they were making up their minds what to do, and we were getting more and more flying hours. When we got overseas, they didn't know what, what they were going to do with us over there, and we still were flying and getting more and more combat hours. But the crux of the whole thing is they turn you loose with no experience against combat pilots and other branches of the service who uh, had been experienced or who were led by experienced pilots. So initially, we didn't show up as well as they did later. But after we'd been there a while, that's when I first learned that there's no substitute for experience. Because once the fellows got the experience, they would run, they could do as well as anybody that flew an airplane. And we had some guys who made outstanding records for themselves. Well, but they weren't all bomber, they weren't all flying as um, patrol with the, with the, with the, with the with bombers. The bomber. Because when we first went overseas, we were dive bombing, flying escort. We were strafing. We were strafing. Right, flying harbor patrol. We didn't go right into uh, escorting. No. Uh, the, and later on, you know, the Westy oil fields and all those. Yeah. That was later. Yeah. The first combat mission ever flown by a black <laughs> pilot was with the ninth and the ninth fighter pilots when they dived bomb Pantelleria, a little island Italy. between Cape Bon and Italy. And they would, we were dive bombing that island. And later we covered the invasion at Sicily after we knocked out that island and going into mm -hmm. Licata and Jailer, Sicily, and then we went into Italy after that, going right up to Boot. When did the white pilots who weren't, you, you were segregated on the bases though, weren't you? That's right. Yeah. So when did the white pilots recognize that you guys were really good? Well, actually, when they really, when they really got a name for themselves, you see, there was an invasion at Angio. At Angio was the first time they really had an opportunity to shoot down German pilots. Charlie Hall was the fellow who shot down the first enemy plane. And at that time, he got an awful lot of recognition because he was the first one. But there were a number of planes that were shot down over Angio, and these were not flying as escorts for bombers. They were flying at that time protecting Anzio, which was a little beachhead that, where they tied them in for a longer period of time. But before then, we had been in an invasion of Sicily. We'd been in, and also we had were an invasion of Salerno before we got to Anzio, but you didn't have the opportunity because they weren't there. And the Germans weren't there to get shot down, so you were doing other things that didn't capture the eyes of the newspapers. Uh, I was going to suggest at this time, too, uh, that Jack is talking about, the uh, the press was debating whether or not we were a successful experiment. They referred to the Black Air Force Group or Air Corps Group as an experiment. And even Time Magazine came out with an article. Uh, they sat on the fence. They wouldn't go one way or the mm -hmm. other. Their, their, their headline in the article was... Uh, has the experiment succeeded or failed? I mean, they didn't lend the type of support to us and as they were going along with the attitude of the Times. Uh, not the Times Magazine, but that was the attitude yeah. of Time Magazine. But however, we never, we couldn't, we couldn't uh, distinguish ourselves flying the types of missions that was assigned to us. As Jack says, we dive bombing, we lent support to the British Eighth Army, going up the boot, dive bombing, dive bombing Pantelleria, strafing, knocking out guns so that the 8th Army could move forward and this type of thing. 
there was no possibility of going out there and seeking enemy aircraft, uh, other enemy aircraft, we'll say, and shooting them down and getting a name and coming back in headlines. And this created quite a debate back here in the States. Yeah. You were called, I know, I know it's the book that I have, Lonely Eagles, because in a sense you were left by yourselves, weren't you? Yes. Very well, I never felt very lonely, though. That's the title they put on the book because you had a job to do. Yeah. And, and you knew that you had that job to do. The only thing is that I used to say to myself, what am I doing here fighting mm -hmm. for democracy when we don't enjoy democracy mm -hmm. ourselves? But I knew at that time that if we didn't fight, that after the war we would be infinitely worse off than we would be if we did. And I think the fellows were doing a job that they had to do. I, um, I think that this title, uh, of course... Uh, Dr. Rose uh, picked his title. I think it simply meant that Lonely Eagles meant that we fought as a group separated from the rest of the Air Corps or Air Force at that time. Uh, they, they didn't share the, the camaraderie that went between <coughs> groups or also even Air Forces or, they, uh, or the wings of the Air Force, which was a larger uh, uh, echelon. Yeah, we were alone, all right. Uh, the 99th, when they arrived in Africa, they were put on a dry lake bed, which was their air base. Uh, we were like a stepchild. They didn't know what to do with us, and they had to find they had to find a home for us. They they checked out the 324th Fighter Group to see if they would take us. Uh, they took us for a short while. Then the 83rd and the 79th Fighter Group, they were stationed down the road as far as five and six or maybe ten miles away from us. If we were going, when we were going into action, we had to, we didn't, we didn't take off with them. We rendezvoused with them. They'd call us up and say, well, we're taking off now. Will you meet us over at a certain point? You know, this type of thing. This is how we, the 99th got started. Uh, we were like a stepchild. We were just passed around from group to group, any of those that were willing to take us. What, what he's really saying is that you had a wing and they would have four squadrons that were attached to that wing, whereas that we were an isolated squadron uh -huh. by ourselves mm -hmm. and we flew from an area by ourselves. We were a segregated area, mm -hmm. but the bonds were the same. We didn't have the same plane. <laughs> you know, and the risks no, were the same. No, we, yeah. Well, we had the P-40, which was a slower plane initially. We had the P-40 and we flew the P-40 and dive bombing. And it was not equipped to compete with uh, German planes, which already were, the Americans had control of the sky anyway at, at that time when we went overseas. It wasn't equipped to compete with them on the same basis as you would when they got the 51. Later, they did get the 51, which was the best plane the Americans had. And that's when they made the great You know, the, one of the, best you know the exquisite the irony of this point, <laughs> Ralph and Sammy uh, Rayner, too, ex-Oliver Rayner, is the great irony. You had to fight for the right to risk fight. your life at the front. That's irony, of course. And, of course, it came through like a house of fire. Once more, we may take a break, hear this message, and we'll resume with my four colleagues. Resuming with Judge John Rogers, Bill Thompson, Ralph Orduna, and Sammy Rayner. You going to say something, <clears throat> Mr. Well, I was going to say, even, even in R&R, &R, which is rest and relaxation, I think that's what it means, we were segregated. I, um, I never went overseas. I flew a bomber, and they didn't know what to do with us. And uh, so we trained and trained. Every time you looked up, our, the radio gunner or the tail gunner would be going away to school. 
somewhere, and we never really got the complete togetherness that we were supposed to have until they came back from overseas, they, they, until the fighters came back and we had a composite group, the 477th. But uh, I think one of, the most, one of the most embarrassing, one of the most uh, awful situations that happened here in the United States was Coleman Young, the mayor of Detroit, led a group of men into a white uh, officer's club at Freeman Field, Indiana. And uh, they snuck in, and they uh, snuck in. That's how they got in. And then finally they, they uh, uh, used the rules to get in. To, to end it up, they took about 100 officers back to Godman Field, where we were stationed originally, in chains. I mean, hands, wrist chains, ankle chains, just like they were uh, uh, murderers or gang. chain gang in Georgia somewhere. And I was living off the base. I was married, and I was living in, in the, off the base. They had a little apartment there at Freeman Field. And I didn't know anything about this. I got up next morning, here these guys were lined up getting on a C-47 going back to Godman. But it, it was the most, to me, the most uh, dehumanizing thing I'd ever seen. Here are these men, all of them, men with knowledge, men with learned men, men who were flying, doing a good job, training. And here they were in chains, just like just like dogs. I just I never <laughs> shall forget that. And of course, as I say, Coleman Young, who was quite a firebrand, was the leader, and uh, he's been firebranding ever since. Yeah. But to me, that was the most humiliating, the most dehumanizing thing I ever saw the whole time I was involved. But as I say, I was in a bomb. <clears throat> we was they were getting ready to mark off the boxcars when they dropped the A bomb, and so we never got overseas. The, bomber the bombers, that is. It's funny how it was happening there, but then it was still happening, the segregation, when you were right there overseas. You mentioned R&R. From what Lowell Stewart told me, I remember, uh, the white officers could go to the Isle of Capri, but you weren't allowed to go to the Isle of Capri. Well, that isn't true. No, I went no, to the Isle no. of Capri. Oh, did you? Oh, no, sure. No, that no. isn't correct. I went to the Isle oh, of Capri. Oh, did you? We were allowed sure. to go. Oh. But I tell you what they did. They kept, we stayed in the, what they said was the Princess of Italy's Villa. We were in a separate house, but we had maid, had the maid, and had a man there in the house, and we went there for rest camp. But we were not in a hotel, or we weren't where the other people were situated, but we were on the Isle of Capri. Yeah. And we could, of course, on there you could go into what would be like a tavern here yeah. during the time that you were there. And you got a chance to meet yeah. some of the white flyers there. And when finally, because you, your social life then to the great extent was a segregated social life, this by and large. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I'm sure the fellas can tell you some, give you some good incidents yeah. about that. that I don't think this is a proper place to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> but but, but there's no question the about the fact that, uh, that you did have that. But on the other hand, when I came back from overseas with over 100 combat missions, expecting to train guys who were going overseas to fight in the same outfit that I came from. And they had guys, white fellas, as instructors at Wallaburra, South Carolina, who had never been overseas, and I couldn't even fly a fighter plane. I was flying a what they call an L-5, a little cub. I could go up and ride around in it all I wanted to. Didn't have to do a thing but fly around and enjoy myself, but I couldn't train anybody. Hmm. Sent me back to Tuskegee, still think I'm gonna get to train somebody. What did they do? They cleaned out the base one day. They just took the guys who had come back from overseas and put us in training again to be B-25. And I thought about that because I was flying a bomber, too. After I got back from overseas, I flew B-25 with Godman Field right down there with Simon. And this incident at Freeman Field, James, Clarence Jameson, Wiley, J.T. Wiley, and myself were all combat returnees. We'd come back from overseas. We went over to that officer's club the, the Sunday night 
we went there, walked in, and they turned the lights out. But they didn't arrest any one of us. They didn't arrest. And I learned later that the reason that we weren't arrested was because a combat returnee was entitled to all the privileges of base personnel. And their excuse was at the officers' club was that we couldn't use it because we were not base personnel. We were just trainees. But we were, but at least some of us were combat returnees and we're entitled to the same yeah. privileges as base personnel. So we weren't arrested. But we went in the club and they turned the lights out. Were you putting chains? No, I wasn't, I wasn't putting chains. You know, no, uh, the irony of, of, of this is uh, one experience I had with, uh, we'll say, one of the Italian natives. I think it was in Sicily. Um, I can recall a young lady said to me at one time, uh, she couldn't understand the type of segregation that the United States Air Corps was experiencing on their men. Because every time the 99th uh, moved, they always had to have an engineering outfit to precede them to level off a landing strip and then lay down the uh, uh, metal strips for landing strips. And then they also had to <laughs> dig ditches. These, these are the white engineers digging the ditches. But in all cases, wh whatever community we moved into, the engineers always went into the village or into the towns around and hired the fathers, the brothers, and the male person, people of the village to do the work. So this person said to me one day that I don't understand. Here you got these white engineers digging ditches, laying down mats, and you guys are flying the airplanes. This doesn't make sense. They, they, she said, you know, they have a t America has a tendency to tax our intelligence because we had an Air Force at one time, and it took the cream of the crop. So that why is it that these white guys are down here digging the mm -hmm. ditches and you guys are flying the planes? Well, that, that was very, it was indicative of yeah. some lack of uh, fair play or understanding of democracy, in my opinion. Yeah. They, they used to call uh, the Black Flyers... Uh, Uncle Sam's secret Air Force. That's just, I've heard that expression. Uh, secret Air Force because nothing. The work they were doing wasn't publicized very wasn't much, publicized. except in uh, black press. Oh, yeah, but it what? got no. We got publicity. They started playing it up because I think that. Well, they, Yank magazine, stories. Yank and Stars and Stripes did. I know. Oh, well, the, 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 the Italian magazines played it up too. And I then I think in the, in the neighborhood news. I mean, in your local papers, like for example in Chicago. It was like the Daily News, I guess it was, or the Tribune, papers like that. They would release stories about what was going on, and they read stories about what we were doing, and maybe not to the same extent in the black press, because every week they had something in black press. But they had stories, and, and, they had, and also they had us on the, in the, um, the news they would have in movie houses the in those days. News. They used to have that, because I was at home from overseas, and I saw myself getting out of an airplane <laughs> in the news, in the movie, watching the movie once. So they did, we, we did get published, and things improved. The only thing was that there was a, the leadership in the Air Force did not want black pilots. They did not want them, and I think that they were hesitant about using us. And then it, when they did use us, the lack of experience initially in combat didn't prevented us from showing up as well as we might have. But once the experience was there, they couldn't deny the fact that combat pilots, black combat pilots, had succeeded 
and that they could fly an airplane. They couldn't deny that. And I understand that toward the end, those bombing missions over the Axis oil field, like in Ploesti, you know, remaining the other oil field, that the Tuskegee Airmen's record was that they, the fighter pilot did not lose one a bomber. A single bomber. That's they were flying es escorts. They were the red I, I mean, as escorts. They mm -hmm. were flying escorts yeah. for the bombers uh, at that time, the B-17s, yeah. and they didn't lose a bomber. Now, that bomber, was unprecedented. But that was because, I think, because Colonel Davis was a West Pointer, and he insisted on those guys staying with the bombers and wouldn't let them go off to chase after whatever they wanted to chase after. When the, so that they had to be there with the bombers to protect the bombers with that kind of discipline. And they did a job that made it, the bomber pilot flying a B-17. He was happy to see that red tail. And those B-24 boys, too. <laughs> they were happy to see I, I've seen the time that we, we would come down uh, as we would catch up with the bombers, and we would come down, make a low pass over the bombers, and you never see such waving of hands and and smiles on the faces as uh, when those red tails show up. In fact, it was known that uh, certain bomb groups would request to try to get the red tails for protection. Why red tail? Was that the that was the oh, emblem of the that, that was the emblem. emblem of well, no, the three thirty second. Then and 99th was mm. one of the, the red tail. Yeah. 99th was one of the squadrons in the three thirty second. You see what that, they that did? There were four squadrons. 99th. They were happy to see it. 301st and 302nd, yeah. right. Let me tell you a story. Sammy that, that happened here in Chicago. I, we have a dodo bird. We call the dodos because through atrophy we've lost our, our ability to fly. Well, that's not exactly true. We still fly. Some of us still fly. I went to the bottom, the bottom of, of the dodo birds, me out of, pla out of plywood, had uh, rotted. It was in my basement in a dry rot. And uh, so I want to get a new base on it so it would be able to be shown at one of our, one of our national meetings. And... Uh, uh, I went to uh, one of the lumber companies, Real Lee or whatever it is on 87th Street, and I uh, told one of the salesmen what I want. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, I'll get the manager. So the manager came out, and I explained what I want. I want the base of this fixed for, for a dodo club, the dodo bird. It's just about three or four feet high. And he said, uh, were you a pilot during the war? I said, yes, I flew during the war. He said, let me tell you a story. He said, uh, we were coming back from Aust somewhere in Austria, he said, uh, two of our engines were shot out. And as the, the flight proceeded, we kept dropping further and further back. And we at 9 o'clock, there were two folk wolves sitting there waiting for us to get far enough back so they could shoot us down. He said, if a plane had been in good shape, they would have forced us down so they could have used the parts and used the plane. But we said, we were just barely hanging on with two engines. And he said, uh, we knew we were going to get shot down. We all knew. We started saying prayers because we knew we were all going to be killed. He said, I looked up, and here's one of those. Goddamn red tails, he said. <laughs> he shot one of them down, chased the other one away. He said, uh, we just cheered and hollered and screamed. And said, one of our men was, had been shot and killed, and the, another one had been wounded. He said, we knew we were all dead. And uh, it said, after a little while, the, the red tail pulled up beside him and wiggled his wings, uh, wagged his wings or wiggled, whatever. And uh, he looked in there and he said, as I saw him, he said, he was the blackest son of a bitch I ever saw in my life. Mm -hmm. He said, but I would have kissed him all over State and Madison. <laughs> he said, I would have kissed that nigga all over State and Madison. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that he took it back. But I, my point I'm trying to make is that he, he owes his lives to one of those red tails. And they all, I think most of the white bomber pilots felt that way. I, I had, I had G, one. G Lumber Company. G Lumber Company. Give him a little praise. Not for doing that. We, we had a, a show out here at Midway uh, three four years ago. And um, I was 
out there on the flight line and of course we had our jackets on so people would recognize who we were and fellow walked up and, and grabbed me and hugged me and he says oh my guy say here's one of our red tails <laughs> and of course I know what he meant and then he proceeded to tell me that at one time that uh, some uh, one of the incidents uh, I wasn't involved in him personally but he was relating to one of the incidents where uh, the red tails had come in and where they had given them ground ground support and uh, evidently had, had caused a situation to turn in favor of the group that they were uh, uh, was, that was being attacked and this fellow happened to be in it so uh, there's so many isolated incidents once in a while you run into people uh, almost anywhere especially where there's a gathering of air force such as uh, the air shows like we have up in Oshkosh and places like that mm -hmm. and uh, we run into a lot of the P-51 pilots up there who didn't fly combat but they own the planes and they are the ones who really like to hear the stories also. <laughs> so what we're really doing is we're touching upon what might be called the unwritten or the unrecorded history, except in some quarters, of a certain part of the war, little known. Well, World War II itself was too little known, but certainly this aspect of the, of the black pilots, the black fighter pilots, of, known as Tuskegee Airmen. By the way, I know if you're wearing the emblem, I know Sammy Rayner and, and Ralph Warduna are wearing the emblem, and uh, that's the, uh, is, is there a reunion now, is that it? The Tuskegee Airmen, no. The Tuskegee Airmen. But it has on there the P-40, the yeah. 51, and the B-25. Mm. And the P-40 was the first one that we flew, and then later yeah. there was the 51, yeah. and then the B-25. How many were there all together? Do you have any idea how many, how many pilots? The pilots that went overseas was 499, and we lost 66 of them. Uh, not through any one uh, method. Uh, it was accidents, uh, weather, uh, maybe faulty equipment or something that failed. And uh, I suppose there was pilot error somewhere. But there were 66 all told who uh, paid the final price. About and for every man, on the ground, every man in the air, there were about 50 men on the ground who yeah. kept them in the air. A lot of people don't think about that. Hmm. They think we just flew Please. airplanes, but hmm. we had to have ground support. We had to have uh, men who armors such as the, the good colonel here. We had to have uh, uh, mechanics who kept the planes running, and and uh, they're all, they're often there. They're often forgotten people, but I think it's important we should mention. Gentlemen, let's take our last break. Hear this message, and then we'll resume. And so for the final round, a recounting of an experience of World War II, with. Judge John W. Rogers, Bill Thompson, Ralph Orduna, and Sammy Rayner. What happened to you or to your colleagues when you came back? Here's a case Judge Rogers speaks of not being allowed 100 combat missions, not being allowed to train guys, whereas a white guy without any combat training was. What finally happened? And that story I've heard repeated many times. May, yeah, may I, I uh, allude to that for Colonel just a Thompson. second? Uh, one of the interesting things, I think every pilot in, that was in the Air Corps and then eventually into the Air Force when he came back, they, they wanted to extend their dreams. They wanted to continue to fly. And I can remember when the Dodos was first organized here in Chicago. Uh, there was a lot of effort to try to get into commercial aviation. Um, there, was a, there was no 
cooperation on the part of airliners, I, uh, uh, these airlines, but I do know that uh, there are many agencies from airline to airline talking to executives and so forth, trying to sell the idea of using black pilots. Many of them said that they weren't qualified, they didn't have enough time, and I know for a fact that Sammy's outfit, 477, and I know this is a fact, that they had over 18,000 hours of flying time just in that bomber, twin-engine, multi-engine training. Well, that is just a light step away from sitting in the left seat of a, an airliner in those days because the airliners in those days were mainly DC-3s, and a lot of our guys flew DC-3s, even had them on the base. We had used them as courier aircraft but they couldn't get in. And the, ch the thing hasn't changed too much because if you look at the picture today, we've got something like 27,000 airline pilots employed on our commercial airlines. We have 150 black airline pilots. That's the way it stands today. Wow. I, I tried to... Um, Ralph, we're doing that. I tried to further my uh, career in aviation also, but I ran against the same stone wall. They would throw this... Uh, how many hours did you have, and how many engines can you fly? And of course, I didn't. I did not get into multi-engines. I was only a single-engine pilot, and that was a, the one block that they threw at me, and I couldn't deny it. But certainly, uh, anyone that would, other pilots who would come back from overseas would get a chance to improve. And this again was where they would not give us a chance. And I did get a commercial license. But I had to pay for it myself and go through the GI Bill to do that. Hmm. And then it was limited. Yeah, I was thinking. I didn't have any trouble getting a commercial license. What were you going to do with it after? I also had a commercial license. Yeah. But after you got it, it wasn't going to do you any good, well, really. I, I, went, <laughs> I went into teaching with, with the, the commercial license that I had. Yeah, I'm thinking. But it, I think uh, the success of the whole thing, though, is this that our guys blazed away so that today, black fly flyers are flying throughout the Air Force. And we had Chappie James who started out with us. At, he was down at Guyville Field. He didn't go overseas in World War II, but he went overseas later. And I think he fought in yeah. three wars, didn't he? Yeah. But he became a general. And other uh, Hannibal Cox, who started out with the 99th. Well, I don't know whether he was the 99th. He came out. He came later. But he fought in all four wars and became vice president of Eastern Airlines. He's a vice president now of Eastern Airlines. So they opened the door for the people who came after. I think that's the story, really. <clears throat> the idea that the Tuskegee Airmen, you and your colleagues, were the pioneers. You went through every ordeal that could possibly be thought of to make it easier for those who followed. It's also one of those ironic, not a footnote, one of those ironic commentaries on the war, it's called the war, to liberate mankind that at that moment was incredibly segregated. One last go round, very briefly. The hour, of course, is up. I know that you could talk for hours, and all you've done is touch upon the experience, study of the Tuskegee Airmen. One last go round, Colonel Thompson. Anything comes to mind we haven't talked about? Well, I think the one thing I might like to emphasize is the fact that uh, when these young men went into the Air Corps, when they were young and so forth. They didn't have to be briefed on what their responsibility was to themselves, to their community, or as they say, to your people. We didn't have to, we went in there with the idea that we were going to succeed. We went in there with the idea that uh, once we 
had the opportunity to perform, we would come out, things would be changed. Well, we were responsible for a lot of changes. If you look at the uh, social reforms that took place in this country subsequent to the war, uh, schools, uh, employment in a lot of areas, all this came about, the, the, the federal legislation that took place, equal rights opportunities and all that. I think that we were a great contributor to that. Sammy Rayner. Well, I got an opportunity to fly, something I've always wanted to do. I guess in the hearts of most young men, they're not the space uh, astronauts that are most of them want to be, but uh, I got an opportunity to fly. I got an opportunity to meet some fine people. I should never forget some of them. I, uh, I'd like to feel that I played a part in making uh, these United States a better place to live for any, everybody. Ralph Arjuna. Well, I want to take this opportunity to thank uh, you for allowing us to express our opinions and our stories. And I hope this not, was not only entertaining, but also informative, and that the young people, the ones that are coming behind us now, can take heart from some of our struggles and some of our altercations and whatnot that we had to put up with and take heart that they also can come out and do what they want to do. It does not have to be in aviation, but in any field of their endeavor that they will succeed with just a little more effort. Judge Rogers. Well, I think that one of the things that the Tuskegee Airmen proved was if you set your goals high enough, you can attain those goals. And certainly, I would say this to young people today, that they don't have to restrict their horizons if they set their goals high enough and are willing to work to achieve those goals. They have an opportunity today, I believe, to achieve most goals, and I would hope they would think in that direction. Just a footnote. Would, uh, Ralph Borduno pulled out a worn address book or a diary. What's that? This, this is my diary that I kept, that I kept record of all my flights and everyday activities during the time that when I went overseas to Ramatelli, Italy. And uh, I find here on the 5th of February yeah. what I had written. Yeah. This is the year of 1945, 40 years ago today. This is what the diary says. First mission, plane wouldn't start right. <laughs> and to take off and fly with the 99th Fighter Squadron met members and went into the target at Salzburg. Mission completed okay. I was very tired at the end of the mission. That's 40 right. years to a day. <laughs> That's, <right. laughs> That's a so if, Gentlemen, thank you very much. <laughs>